Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. This teaching was recorded live during our weekend service in St. Charles, Illinois. We invite you to join us in person any weekend in St. Charles, DeKalb, Aurora, or Streamwood. Learn more at ccclife.org. And now, enjoy the message. It's a privilege to be here to continue in this unpacking of the Lord's Prayer. And as we arrive at this passage regarding us crying out to God to lead us not into temptation, but to deliver us from the evil one, it actually starts springboarding a bunch of questions in my mind. And it also kind of surfaces this this thought and this idea of becoming vulnerable enough to trusting somebody to actually lead you somewhere. I don't know about you, but I can tend to hold people suspect and low-key, we call it throwing shade on them, when they just kind of want to put themselves in a leadership position over me, and I got to think through like, well, hold on, you got to earn my trust first before I'm going to follow you. And it also reminds me of this scene that my wife and I watch on this show called The Office. And in The Office, there's this relationship in one of the earlier seasons of this young man by the name of Jim, and he's dating this lady by the name of Karen. And their boss, Michael Scott, takes the whole office to the beach to do various types of activities so that he can think who he is going to pick as his replacement because he thinks he's going to move on to a corporate position. Now, all that to say that there is this scene in this episode that cracks me up because Jim is the team lead and he picks his girlfriend, Karen, and the very first game that they have for competition is the old school blindfold over the eyes, carrying an egg on a spoon relay race. And what this scene shows is that Karen fully trusts Jim because he is supposed to lead, guide, and direct her around the course and back so that she can take the blindfold off, hand it to the teammate, and then give them the egg on the spoon. Well, Jim is a little ornery dude, and what he does is that he begins to lead her astray purposefully as a joke, and he begins to tell her to watch her step, step over this, and basically it is just flat sand, and she is just like carefully listening and trusting him and vulnerability and every step that she takes. And then finally he says, okay, take another step. And she steps and he has led her off the course and into the lake. And immediately when she feels her foot go into the water, she takes the blindfold off. They laugh about it. And then I just said, you know what? God will never do us like that. When we ask God to lead us, he's not going to prank us. He's not going to joke around with us. He's not going to take us off the course that is in his word prescribed, the pathway of righteousness. He's never going to do that. So God is actually legit somebody we can trust to lead us every step throughout the course of this life. And so as we think through this idea of how do we pray through temptation when trials and issues and pressures in life now enter into the reality of our everyday steps. How do we engage God with this tension? I think this truth is going to help us throughout the day. So I'm, my main point for this passage is this. Praying through temptation is a two-sided coin because we're asking God to lead us but also to keep us. So let me say that one more time. Praying through temptation is a two-sided coin because we're asking God to lead us but also to keep us. So the first question that pops in my mind, how does God lead us? And I'm glad you asked because the word of God answers that. It says, and lead us not into temptation. The first truth that I want us to understand from this simple phrase is that God desires to lead us. He actually legit desires to lead us. 
Now, this word lead is written in such a way that it identifies that God is the one who is actively pursuing us in order to lead us. He is actually chasing after us in the hope that we would give the opportunity to surrender our whole being to him so that he can lead us in the way of righteousness. The first thing we have to recognize is that God is able, but also God is willing to lead us. He doesn't do it begrudgingly. It reminds me of a time when my wife and I were doing ministry outside the United States, and we had a day off, and we wanted to go into the country a little deeper than where we were doing the, the time of ministry, and we wanted to take a tour. And so we walked up to a tour guide, and we asked them if they would take us on a tour, and the tour guide really didn't seem like he wanted to take us anywhere. And I feel like it was like five minutes before the shift changed, and he was almost trying to talk us out of going on the tour. Like, oh, you don't want to go there. I mean, I could take you there, but I don't, you know, it's a little hot right now. And it got to the point where I was like, you know what, I'm just going to go to your competitor, which is like five feet away from here, and we're just going to go over there and see if they'll lead us. And we walked over there, and the first thing the brother did is, hey, here's two bottles of water, whether you pick me or not. And I'm like, I like you, bro. Like, I like you, man. And so we began to ask him, hey, can we do this? Can we go here? He's like, you know what, I know a guy that owns land I can actually take you there as well and I'm like well hold on how do I know I can trust you man like is this legal like where are you gonna take us and so like he began to walk us through and show the pathway of where he's gonna to, to take us and how he's certified and I'm like all right fine and my wife and I enjoyed that four-hour tour and we gave him a great review on Yelp and the whole nine right and I remember thinking like man it's different when somebody actively wants to lead you that you can begin to trust them in their leadership and in their guidance and in their direction and this is exactly what praying through temptation does. It's saying, God, I actually can trust you because you actually desire to lead me. You don't do it begrudgingly. You don't come to me when I come to you in prayer, Lord God, and think, oh, man, five minutes before my shift changes, before the Holy Spirit. No, no, no. Like, you actually want me to come to you and ask you for guidance and direction, and you will lead me. But that also brings up the question, why do we even need to be led by God in the first place? And this is where we get a little bit more deeper into our process of evaluating who we are. Because the first thing we have to understand is that all of our hearts, since the time we were conceived in our mother's wombs, has been geared towards sinfulness and brokenness. And the reason we are in that condition is that we recognize that we all have the same parents, Adam and Eve. And in the garden, Eve was deceived by the serpent. He pitched her two lies that he pitches every single one of us, even to this day. Lie number one is that, hey, you can question and deconstruct God's word to the point that you walk away from it because it's not trustworthy. And number two, God ain't good. If he was good, he wouldn't hold back from you things that you desire. Eve was deceived, Adam deliberately disobeyed God, and when he ate the fruit, sin and death entered into our world, and it separated us from God. We have all, equally as the human race, regardless of our ethnicity, regardless of our culture, regardless of our language, regardless of where we're from, equally, we have all inherited this sin nature from our first father, Adam. This is what Romans 5.12 tells us. From conception, according to Psalm 51.5, sin is already woven into the fabric of who we are. Psalm 58.3 tells us that the wicked come forth from the womb speaking lies. So that tells us, every single one of us, our native language is not English, it's not Spanish, it's not Cantonese, it's not Tagalog. Our native language is lying. 
Nobody had to teach you how to lie. Nobody had to teach you and I how to sin. We are natural born sinners, according to Ephesians chapter 2. Jesus in John 8.34 says that if you commit one sin, you're a slave to sin. So not only are we willful participants in, in participating in the acts of sin, each and every one of us now obeys our master, and that is sinful desires. And that is why God desires to lead us, and that is why we need to be led by God. Because when we lead our own decision-making processes, when temptations and trials come before us, we are naturally geared towards always selecting the sinful reality. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond care. Who can understand it? Naturally, according to Ephesians 2, 2, we follow the ways of the world, and it always leads us further away from God and further away from the pathway of righteousness that he has created for us. And that's a heavy truth to think through and process. But there's also a beautiful reality to this truth, is that Jesus, who is fully God, added to his full deity, full humanity. Like how we put clothes on this morning, Jesus clothed himself in flesh. And he left the presence of God and he dwelt amongst us. And he lived the perfect life that you and I could never live. And the reality of why he came on a mission trip was to seek and save the lost. And what he did, according to Ephesians 2, is that he preached peace to those who were near and those who were far away from God. It reminds me of a time when my wife and I threw a barbecue at our house years ago. And when I say years ago, I mean quite a few years ago to the point that this was before we had GPS on our cell phones. And so when we gave our address to the two families that we invited, they had to go to this website called MapQuest.com. <laughs> you're laughing because you're like, I remember that. It was a long time ago. Hopefully it wasn't yesterday for some of us. And what's crazy about MapQuest.com is that you can type in where you start and where you will end. And then amazingly, you would press this button and this dinosaur of a machine would spit out this thing called a piece of paper. And it would actually legit give you step-by-step -step directions from where you start to where you want to finish. And I remember the day of the barbecue, we got a phone call in our house. And it was crazy because we had this thing called a cordless phone. It's like a cell phone, but the charger was like connected to the wall, right? And you had to press these things called buttons in order to call somebody. And it rang and we picked up and it was the first family and they were a block away from our house. And when I asked them exactly where they were, they said, we're at the gas station with the church's chicken. And I said, oh man, you were literally like a block away. However, when you pull out, there's a median and you can't go directly to the block where our street is. You actually got to take a right, go back to the main street, take a few lefts. So you know what? Just stay where you are. Let me come find you and lead you back to the house. And that's what I did. And as soon as I got back to the house, my wife met me outside with the cordless phone and she said, the second family is on the phone. And I'm like, oh Lord, have mercy. So I get back on the phone and I talk to my friend and he's like, bro, my wife got us lost. He was a newlywed, so give him some grace, right? <laughs> so the first thing I said is, where's your wife right now? He's like, she's looking at me like I'm crazy. I said, well, brother, you crazy to say something like that about your wife. So I said, number one, you need to look at her and say, baby girl, I was tripping. I blacked out. I don't know what I said, but I asked for forgiveness. And he said, I ain't going to say that. Then I said, then I ain't going to see you today. <laughs> so I said, I'm serious, bro. Like, this is the first lesson in marriage, man. You never throw your wife under the bus, bro. So he looked at her, baby, I'm sorry, you know, it's what I did, it's what I said. And all she said was, mm-hmm. That's all she said. <laughs> so I didn't know, I was like, I don't know if I want y'all in my space today. Like, I don't know about this. 
But I said, you know what, tell me where you are. So he said, man, we're at the McDonald's down the freeway. And I said, oh, bro, you were like 10, 15 minutes away. I said, you know what, just stay where you are. I'm already in a car. I'm going to come find y'all, and I'm going to lead you back to the house. And that's exactly what I did. They came back to the house. We had a good time of barbecue. We laughed about the whole situation. Everything worked out fantastic. That whole illustration is to set up the beauty of the gospel. See, it's almost like God was in heaven. And the reality of those that he had covenanted with in the nation of Israel, they had access to God's word, his love letter, that shows righteousness and unrighteousness. That it says, by faith, I can deal with your sin. And the reality of the nation of Israel is that they had a word of God. But you know what? Jesus had not began the work of the church at that time. And the reality of Jesus now leaving the home, which is heaven, and he came to where the Jews were. They were near, but they weren't at the home. He gave them the pathway to home and fellowship with God. But then there were those who were not part of Israel, those who were Gentile, those who were further down the freeway, if you will, that were lost and unaware of how to find God. Jesus came and found them as well. So the first place that God desires to lead us, it's not to success. It's not to five ways to becoming a better you. The first place God wants to lead you is to Jesus. John 6, says that it's the Father that draws us to Jesus. And when he draws us to Jesus, Jesus will never turn us away. He has arms open wide. That means sinners from every ethnicity, every situation, every reality that is imaginable or unimaginable, we can be led by God to find Jesus and find salvation in exchange for our sinful brokenness. So God desires to lead us so that he can lead us to Jesus. And when we embrace Jesus by faith, that leads us to this fact that God designs our lives so that we can be led. So when we actually pray, lead us not into temptation, what we're saying to God is, please lead me. Because before I knew Jesus, when I try to lead myself, it was always into brokenness, more drama, more issues, more anxiety. Lord, I need you to lead me, especially when I encounter temptation. This word temptation literally carries the idea of something to be tested so that it can be seen if it's true or if it's untrue. And the reality of God leading us when we embrace Christ, every day of our life after that, we can rest assured that in the moments of temptation, God will never lead us to sin. He will never lead us away from the pathway of righteousness that he has designed for us. But when we encounter temptation, when we encounter trials, because we live in a broken world, the reality is we can embrace those times of trial and temptation as an opportunity to see that we are truly walking and being led by God. This idea and this word that when it was communicated in Jesus' day, people would understand that it was the testing of precious metals through a fire, and the fire would burn out and purge all the impurities out of the metal so that the person who would be a goldsmith or a silversmith or a bronze smith would take the purity of this metal that is molten down and shape it and form it into whatever they wanted it to be. It reminds me of a story of a young man who wanted to learn how the silversmith made silver. And he actually approached the silversmith at the right time because the silversmith was putting this chunky, dirty, big rock on this spoon with a long handle. And he had fired up the kiln as hot as he could get it. And as the young man said, how do you make silver? He said, you came at the right time because I'm going to show you. So he put that long spoon with that dirt clump and the very tip of it into the fire and left it and walked away. 
And the young man said, so how do you make silver? And he said, I'm going to invite you into the process of watching me make silver. What the young man didn't know was it was going to be a lengthy process of that man pulling that spoon in and out and in and out. And finally, when the young man was about to walk away out of frustration because he just wanted a simple answer, the silversmith said, the silver's ready. Now I can shape it and mold it to what I want it to be. And the young man was like, well, hold on. Are you just saying that because now I'm about to leave and I'm frustrated with the process? He said, oh, no, no, no. The process of being in the fire is done. And the young man said, well, how do you know? He said, when I pull it out and I can see my reflection, all the impurities are purged out. And now it's ready to be shaped and molded to what I want it to be. When we face trials and temptations, we're in the fire. You and I know what it's like to be in the fire. The good news about being in the fire as a follower of Jesus is that it is purging the impurities of our sinfulness out of us. So that when the Father looks at us, he sees his design for our life reflected in the words that we say and in the actions that we do. And the reality of this is that he shapes us and molds us in who he desires us to be, more looking like Christ Jesus. The personal application in my own life for this is that there have been times in the midst of the fire and in the furnace that I want to avoid the fire and the furnace altogether. So I'm actually praying, Lord, like lead me away from any type of trial. But what God reminds my heart is, Damon, unless you go through it, you can never grow through it. And the reality of trials are those opportunities for us to see how deep is my love for the Father. I've learned that God the Father loves me deeply. But the thing that I question is how much love does the Father's, how much love that I have for the Father, how deep does it run in my soul and in my decision-making process? So there's a framework in identifying God's direction when it comes to those times of triary files. The first thing is, since I know my heart, I know all my desires initially are not wholly impure. They're not absolutely righteous. Even as one who's been walking with Jesus for 23 years, I sin every single day. There's this flesh. I get agitated. I get frustrated. Just ask my kids when I step on a Lego how my response is. <laughs> so the first thing I have to do is that I have to take my heart and the desires that are already in there and ask God to purge them out. So I read Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24, which says, Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. I'm basically telling God, you know and I know there's wickedness in my decision-making process. You know that there's the temptation for me to pick myself above others. You know that I'm trying to do everything to avoid anything that disrupts my comfort, Lord. So with that being said, Father, highlight my blind spots. Show me my weaknesses. Help me understand what my fears are that's leading to my anxiety, and let's just get it out on the table. And the good news is, is that when God highlights my blind spots and he shows my fears and he shows my wickedness and he shows me my sinfulness, that means God is not going to abandon me in that time of vulnerability. He's going to lean in and press in, and he's actually going to say, now give me all of these things. Give me these desires that are not in step with my word, that are not in design with my will for your life, Damon. And when I do that, now I go to Psalm. Psalm 34 verse 4 which says I sought the Lord and he answered me he delivered me from all my fears 
God spoke to me and he answered my prayer. Even when I'm asking him, show me my selfishness. That's a very risky prayer. It's almost like going to your boss and say, hey, instead of my annual evaluation, can we just do something right now? And I want to hear your honest thoughts about what you think about my performance. It's a very risky situation that you brought upon yourself to do. But the reality is that if your heart's intentions are, I want to be a better employee, then your employer will say, you know what, I welcome that conversation. It may good, may go bad. But the reality is, is that you have a desire to do better. And with God, he loves us enough to say, I won't only highlight it, let me handle it for you. And the reality then is that when I have expressed these things, I ask God, remove those sinful things from my heart and replace them with his desires for my decision making. And then I pray Psalm 37, 4, which says, take delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your own heart. I can actually take delight in this conversation that I'm having with God, knowing that he has taken my sinful desires and he has put his desires. So now the desires that I have are actually his. And I can rejoice in that exchange that has taken place. And then I ponder, okay, now what do I have to decide on? What is the tension that I'm facing? What is the issue? What is the crisis? What is the counsel that I need to give to others? How can I now make steps of my decisions that are in step and in harmony with your word? And then I turn to Psalm 20, verse 4. And the word of God says, may he give you the desire of your heart and make your plan succeed. The idea of success is not more money. It's not more popularity but it's faithfulness to obeying what God has said in his word. Now my heart is in a more willing way to respond in the moment of trial, in the moment of the furnace, to what God has said, this is how I want you to respond. So when we're praying, lead us not into temptation, it's not a prayer of, hey, help me to dodge every situation and circumstance that's uncomfortable. Rather, as these things come into my life, Lord, Help me to not sin and to not give in to selfishness, but to walk in harmony with Scripture. Because James chapter 1, verses 2 through 5 says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance first finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God. Who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. James says something very interesting. He says, whenever you face, whenever we face trials, the first thing you and I have to understand is we don't have to act brand new when stressful seasons in life come. We don't have to be so naive that we think walking with Jesus never comes with hardships and moments of trial and moments of temptation. It's foolish to think that, man, everything's going to go great in life now because I'm following Christ. No, that's not the way the world works. Even though you encounter Jesus and even though he changes your world, the world around you has not changed. So there is that constant tension that we are facing in being followers of Christ. But, but it's, almost like, it's almost like this, you know, I grew up in Kansas City. I was born and raised in Kansas City, as was my wife. So we knew every winter that we needed to bundle up. Because it was cold outside, and that white crazy stuff from the sky would fall called snow, and it would be piles and piles and piles, and they never canceled school where I grew up at. And so the reality of that led me to know that, you know what, it would be foolish of me in mid-January to put on some flip-flops and some shorts and a tank top and walk outside and be like, I'm going to school, and then act all surprised when it's below sub-freezing temperatures outside. 
I would be the foolish one because I know better. I was raised there and I knew. Even in the summertime, there's these two things that take place in the Midwest that you know about, heat and humidity. And the frustrating thing about the humidity is like every time I walk outside of an air-conditioned facility, it feels like I'm walking into a bathroom after somebody took a steamy hot shower. And it's like the sweat in my body is compelled to jump out at the same time. And so when I'm engaging heat and humidity, it would be foolish for me to wear big boots, a big down coat with a hoodie, and long john underwear under some jeans. Like if I walked outside in mid-August, now it feels good the past couple of days, but a regular August day out here, you know it's not like that. But y'all would say, why would you wear that? Why are you so naive? You know what's going on. You know the situation. Don't be surprised when the heat and the humidity attack you in the summer. And don't be surprised when the wind blows and it chills your soul in the wintertime. In the same way as a Jesus follower, when you have stresses and pressures and persecution for standing for Christ, don't act surprised. Don't act brand new. When people say, wait, you say Jesus is the only way for salvation? Don't be surprised with the pushback. James is saying, instead of that, respond with the way that you contemplate, Lord, how can I be faithful in following you in this moment? But the good news is, even when we face various trials and situations in life, God is producing in us perseverance. And the way James phrases that, it's comforting because it allows us to rest in the work of God. The way that word produce as a verb is written is that God is the one doing the production, not you and I. We are passively receiving his producing of perseverance through us. That word perseverance literally means like a boxer taking a bunch of hits and withstanding the punishment. Maybe getting knocked down a few times, but getting back up and finishing the fight and winning in victory. There's times in my life when I've encountered some very, very stressful and tough times. And the reality is, I didn't always obey God. I made sinful decisions. I looked for the fastest way out so I can get comfort in that moment. And even though I've been knocked down by sin, even though I've taken a lot of punches, I praise God that he never left me in the ring by myself, that he remained with me even when I sinned. He reminded me that he's faithful and just to forgive, that he's not done. He's never going to throw in the towel. He's never going to kick me out of his family. That comfort allows me to deal with guilt and shame in the most appropriate way. Instead of running from my father, I run to my father, and I make myself known through this beautiful transaction called prayer. See, we can trust God's leadership in our lives. He'll never lead us to sin but he will never leave us in the midst of struggle. He remains with us through every hardship because he is maturing us in Jesus. Here's one truth that I pray sticks to the bones of your being is this. God will never lead us where he can't keep us. He will never lead us where he can't keep us. So the question is, Damon, if I follow God's leading how do I know he's going to keep me? That's a very good question. And that's what Jesus says in response. How does God keep us, we ask? Jesus says, our prayer, but deliver us from the evil one, expresses how God keeps us. Number one, in the same way as God desires to lead us, he actively desires to keep us. 
This word deliver, as we cry out deliver, it literally means to urgently snatch somebody away from fatalistic danger. Like a mother would snatch her child away from an oncoming car in a Target parking lot to protect their child. The reality of snatching and delivering to rescue This takes risk, it takes vulnerability, and it takes trust. To cry out to say, rescue me from the one who wants to destroy me. This is the loving father that we serve. He protects his children from destruction. Not just destruction of our soul, but self-destruction. When we make decisions that are not in step with his design for our life. You know, but even as I think through this concept of God being a good father. As I've been walking with the Lord for over 23 years of my life, one of the greatest stumbling blocks that I've encountered is understanding God to be a good father. And the reason, and it's unfair to God, is because I don't, I haven't had a strong relationship with my biological dad for most of my life. Challenges, abandonment issues, neglect, frustrations, not seeing things eye to eye. And what I have unfaithfully done to God is I've taken the sins of my dad and placed them indirectly on God as if God is the one who has treated me that way. And it's been so hard to process through him being a loving father because all I can think about is the brokenness of my biological dad. But now me having three kids, I recognize (laughs) I'm not a good dad either. And the reality of that is I do everything I can to be proactive to remind my kids, look, I'm going to break promises. There's going to be times you're going to get on my nerves and I'm going to ignore you. You frustrate me. But the reality is I love you and I don't always show it the best way. So every time I fail you, please don't think that God is like me. Every time I make a mistake, every time I hurt you, every time I disappoint you, just remember Jesus is more beautiful than I. Your loving father who is perfect, loves you perfectly, and he'll never drop the ball like I do because I need that father to give me love as well. And the beautiful thing about God the Father, in the same way with me imperfectly loving my kids, like I know with my 15-year-old, there's a certain way that I got to nuance and contextualize the way that I show my Bella love. She's 15. She's in the midst of uh, about to start her sophomore year in school this week. And All the drama that comes with that and being a teenager in this day and age. I never thought I would say these kids today, but now every day I'm saying these kids today, right? So like my 15-year-old, I kind of nuance the way that I love her and the way that she receives love. For my 11-year-old, Lola, all I got to do is play Fortnite with her. And she's like, hey, life is good. Life is good playing video games with dad. And I'm like, baby, don't ever grow up. Let's just keep it right here. (laughs) And my 5-year-old, bless his heart. Every day he wakes me up in the 6 o'clock hour, and the first thing that he asks for, you ready to play Legos? You ready to play Legos? You ready to play Legos? So his love language is Legos. So as long as it involves Legos or Ego waffles, he is all good. So I have to learn to nuance, and I have to learn, even as an imperfect human being, how to love my children to the best of my ability. Listen, we have a God who is perfect, a Father who is perfect. And no matter what level of woundedness, abandonment, neglect, or whether you are a dad or a parent that struggles with nuancing expressions of love to your children, take heart, be encouraged. The Father loves you, and he knows the best ways that he can express love to you. And one way that equally all of us should now look at how he expresses love 
is by keeping us, keeping us safe and protected from the clutches, the schemes, and the plans of the evil one. Who is the evil one? The evil one is Satan. And his desires for us is death and destruction. As we know in the word of God, the, rec the, the recognizing of 1 Peter 5, 8, and 9 is so crucial here. As Peter says, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. Satan hates us. He does not want us to flourish in the pathway of righteousness that God has designed for us to walk in. He does not want us to embrace Christ. He wants us to think that we can clean ourselves up and then come to God where the scripture and the gospel tells us, no, bring all of your dirt and your filth to God because he wants to take it all. And the reality of walking with God means that the evil one is going to attack you. He is going to come after you. The world system will do everything to distract you away from walking in harmony with the will of the Father. But we can fight back. We're not fighting back physically, but spiritually. And we're leveraging practical ways that we can take God's word and apply it in our lives. The Bible tells us standing firm in the faith. This is how we oppose Satan. We resist him by standing firm in the faith. And the way that we stand firm in the faith is that we stop entertaining the lies of Satan and we dive into the truth of God's word. Satan is the author of lies. He is the father of lies. And the reality of how we fight back is not by quoting our favorite TV shows. It's not by quoting our favorite musicians, rappers, or singers. It's not by telling jokes. The way that we fight back at the evil one well, Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. The way that we fight back and the way that we stand firm in the faith is that we use the weapons that God has given us, prayer and the word of God. And the reality of that looks like this. Imagine if our military was about to go to war. And you know that our government would do everything possible to equip every single one of our members of service in every branch with the adequate tools and weapons that were necessary to secure victory. But imagine if every single one of our soldiers from every one of our branches decided to let go of the government-issued weaponry and pick up water guns from the local convenience store to go fight the enemy. And as soon as they roll up on the enemy and the enemy sees them and, they, and we see them and they pull out their water guns, and the enemy's going to be like, man, brah, and that's it. You cannot guarantee that when you forsake the weaponry that was assigned to you to fight for victory and you exchange it for something that is going to be ineffective, you cannot expect to walk in victory. And the reality of the enemy that we face, it's not an AR-15, it's not an M-16, it's not a Glock 9 that we use to fight the evil one. It's the word of God. And the perfect person that demonstrated that is Jesus. In Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, Satan went toe-to-toe -to -toe with Jesus, and he tempted him with the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, which are the three umbrellas that every other sin falls up under. And each time Jesus encountered a temptation, he said, it is written, and he quoted the word of God. When Paul says, take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, the word word is not 
logos, which means written. It's rhema, which means to speak. So the way that we fire back at the evil one is we memorize the word of God or we open up our Bible and we quote in the moment of temptation God's perfect word because the father of lies becomes silenced and mute when the word of God is proclaimed. So if you want to walk in victory, over pornography, if you want to walk in victory over stealing, over lying, over a double life that you've been living, come out of the shadows of hypocrisy through confession of sin, cling to the body of Christ which is close to you that should love you and not shame you, but then as you are rehabilitating your spiritual walk in Jesus, leverage the word of God in moments of weakness and open up the Bible and put it in your heart and begin to memorize and fire off the word of God at the evil one. That is how God God delivers us from the schemes of the evil one. And so as we recognize that, yes, Lord, you will deliver me, here's the reality. God daily demonstrates his ability to keep us. This is the last point I want us to recognize. God daily demonstrates his ability to keep us. What we cannot do is forget how God's strong arm of salvation has brought us through every season, every struggle, and every storm from pr prior seasons in life. He did not allow us to die in our sins before we heard the gospel in order to embrace Jesus and be given eternal life. He provides us every time we face temptation with an exit sign, recognizing we do not have to choose to sin. Just like when we are dismissed and we walk out of the sanctuary, we will pass an exit sign. That is letting us know this is the proper way, this is the way out. And God has given each and every one of us, when temptation is given to us, an exit sign to say this is the way out. If you trust my leadership and you cry out, lead me away from sinning and temptation and deliver me, God says, I always will. I will always give you the exit sign. But brothers and sisters, when we sin and when we dabble in flirtation with the things that the evil one puts in front of us and we fall, do not believe the lie that God has done with you, but rather go back to the word. I'm reminded in 1 John chapter 1, 8 through 10 that says, if we say we have no sin as followers in Jesus, we deceive ourselves and we're making God a liar. So we have sin. But the comforting reality is that if we confess our sins, God says, I am faithful and just to provide you with forgiveness and relieve the tension in our relationship. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 5 reminds us that Jesus Christ will never leave us nor forsake us. The way that's written in the Greek, there's five negatives. What's so crucial about that, it's different than English. Because in English, when you put two negatives together, it cancels out to become a positive. I, it sounds weird. I didn't come to give you an English or math lesson. But the reality is, if I said, I don't have no iPad, that means I don't have no iPad. I actually have an iPad. It's confusing in English. But in Greek, oh, it makes sense. Because two negatives actually compound to make it like, oh, that's never going to happen. Three, oh, there's no question. Five? Why are we even having this conversation? The reality is that even when we sin 
As a Jesus follower who the Holy Spirit lives inside of, Jesus will never leave you. He'll never forsake you. God will never blindfold you and say, you're on your own. He will never say, I'm sick of you falling into this same thing yet again. I'm done with you. He is not an abusive God. He's a loving father full of compassion, and he is saying, I want these things to be purged out of you so I can see my reflection of my word in you and the things that you say and the decisions you make. So take heart. Following Jesus is a marathon. It's not a sprint. And God is going to love you for the long haul, and he will keep you until he sees you face to face. That's what Jude tells us, is that we are being kept for Christ, that God is keeping us as he's leading us. So when we pray, deliver us from the evil, when we are declaring to God, I know there's an enemy out there setting traps, and I know that my flesh wants to indulge in what the enemy puts before me. But I know that every time that I've indulged before, it leads to destruction, it leads to brokenness, and it leads to anguish. Father, I'm weak, and I need you. And the good news is his word is there for you, he is there with you, and so is the body of Christ. Remember, brothers and sisters, God will never lead us where he can't keep us. You can trust God's leadership in your life. Let's pray. Father, as we are thinking through the nuances of this prayer and how powerful it is for us, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would begin to shape our hearts in a way that we would be softened by the truth of your word. And if there are any, Lord God, that have never made a profession of faith in Jesus, then, Father, I pray that they would take that step by faith today to say, Lord, I want to begin to follow your leading of my life. And that first place that you will lead them to is Jesus. And let them be comforted by the truth that those you lead to Jesus, Jesus will never reject. He will always embrace. So I pray that they would take that step of faith. And for those of us that have been following Jesus but we're struggling and we're in the tension, and Father, we ask in this moment that you would surface in our lives our blind spots, our fears, our anxieties, and may we bring them to you so that we would no longer be confused that we would follow you with sober minds, knowing that you have delivered us. Speak to us in this time. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.